Would you join me in prayer? Most kind and gracious Father, we thank you for this Lord's Day. We thank you that we can come into your presence. We thank you that we can offer you praise. We pray that it is acceptable to you. God, we pray for your word that it would have its way with us. We thank you for it, that we can read it. We pray, Lord, as Jesus prayed for his disciples, that you would sanctify us by your word and that your word is truth. Father, as, as we dive into your word this morning, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to read for you again the scripture reading that, we, that, that Joel read earlier. This is Psalm 97. This is going to be our passage for this morning. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the multitude of isles be glad. Clouds and darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. A fire goes before him and burns up his enemies round about. His lightnings light the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the Lord of the whole earth. The heavens declare his righteousness, and all the peoples see his glory. Let all be put to shame who serve carved images, who boast of idols. Worship him, all you gods. Zion hears and is glad. And the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, Lord, are most high above all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. You who love the Lord hate evil. He preserves the souls of his saints. He delivers them out of the hand of the wicked. Light is sown for the righteous and gladness for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, you righteous, and give thanks at the remembrance of his holy name. This psalm is about the sovereign reign of God over all the earth, and over all the powers of the earth. This psalm, though, is also prophetic of the fulfillment of God's reign through God the Son when Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father. The New Testament teaches us that this is particularly how we are to understand this psalm. So this psalm was written as part of the Old Testament, is possibly written by David, we don't know for sure, but it was written thousands of years before Christ came, but the New Testament teaches us that Actually, as we read this psalm, we are to see Jesus at the right hand of God. Psalm 97 deals with the power and majesty of our Lord. His enemies have much to fear, but those that kiss the Son have much to rejoice in. God's reign is a terror to his enemies and sweet comfort and joy to his children. There's a number of different ways we could break down this psalm and see it in different sections. The way I'm going to break it down this morning is... Um, starting in verse 1, verse 1 states the subject of this psalm, right? The Lord reigns. God's reign is ultimately to the joy of all mankind. That's the thesis of this psalm. Verses 2 through 7 then describe how God's reign is terror to his enemies because of his righteousness and authority. And then verses 8 through 12 describe how God's reign is comfort and joy to his people because of his sovereignty, justice, and care for them. So again, verse 1 sort of states the thesis for the psalm, the Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. Verses 2 through 7 describe God's, how God's reign is terror to his enemies. And verses 8 through 12, how God's reign is comfort and joy to his people. 
Now, I'm not actually going to deal with the whole psalm this morning. I was uh, preparing this yesterday and just realized there was too much to say. So we're just going to deal with the first seven verses. And Lord willing, I'll be back here next week. So I'll I'll try not to leave you hanging too much, but um, we'll finish up the psalm next week. But we're just going to look at verses one through seven this morning. Before we dive in, it's uh, been said, and I think this is a helpful way to think of the psalms. There's three different readings or three layers that we should um, see when we read the Psalms. The first is the original context, the historical context that it was written in. Um, Whether the author is David or some other psalmist, the question we should ask is, what did they have in mind? What did they have in mind in their particular situation? A good example of this would be Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is written by David right after he is confronted by Nathan the prophet Um, because of his adultery uh, with Bathsheba and his uh, murder of Uriah the Hittite. There's a very particular uh, application for that psalm in David's life. In this psalm that we're going to be looking at this morning, there's not much uh, original context that we know of. We don't know particularly when it was written. There's not much in the psalm to indicate that. It's a more generic psalm of praise of God's reign. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about the original context for this psalm. The second way to read the psalm is uh, what we would call Christological. And that, in, in studying, looking at it this way, we would ask the questions, how is this psalm about Christ? If you read through the New Testament, you'll notice that the New Testament authors quote the psalms often. And what they do is they take the psalms and they show how these psalms actually were speaking of the coming of Christ. And so that invites us to do that with all the psalms. So as we read this psalm, we want to ask, How is this psalm about Christ, and how does the revelation of Christ, the revelation of God the Son, affect our understanding of this psalm? And then thirdly, there's a personal or current application. How does this psalm instruct the church today, and or you personally? So we're going to be looking at those, as as we go through, keep those different layers in mind. Uh, There are slightly different lenses that you can use to read the psalm. The opening line of the psalm is, the Lord reigns. Again, this is the thesis of this psalm. If you look in your Bibles, you may, you may notice that uh, the word Lord there is in all caps. It might depend on your uh, translation there. But the reason for that is because in the Hebrew, the word there is not the normal word for Lord. It's actually the name of God. It's Jehovah or Yahweh. And in Hebrew tradition, they would when they would see the name of God written, and they were, if they were reading out loud, they would not actually use the name of God um, in order to protect themselves from any kind of blasphemy. But instead, they would use the word Adonai, which is translated Lord. So that's why we see that in our translations. They identify that it's the name of God, not just the normal word for Lord, by writing it in all caps. And that will be more important later on in the psalm. So Jehovah God reigns. He is the creator and sustainer of all things. He directs everything through his sovereign will. Not only that, his reign is fulfilled in one sense in the ascension of Jesus to the right hand of the Father. In Matthew, we're told, um, and Jesus says, that all authority has been given to him. All authority over in heaven and on earth. Jesus is king of this world. And that's easy for us to forget because we look around and we see lots of other powers, lots of other governments, lots of other um, people, individuals, and um, companies, governments that seem to run this place. And we forget that actually Jesus claimed that all authority has been given to him. Now, not all authorities yet bow to him and acknowledge that he is Lord, 
But when we go and we preach the gospel to the world, we're supposed to preach the gospel in such a way that says, Jesus is Lord, you're invited to come and acknowledge that. We don't ask people to invite Jesus to be king in their hearts. Jesus is already king. He's king over everything. We need to remember that. Psalm 2 speaks of this when God says to the Son that he will give him the nations for his inheritance and the ends of the earth for his possession. Because of God's reign, fulfilled in Christ's reign, the psalmist calls on the whole earth to rejoice. Um, when we have different seasons, in our, especially in our church communities, we have seasons of Christmas or Advent time where we look forward to the birth of Christ. Coming up on Easter, we have uh, times where we're excited about uh, hearing about the, the resurrection of Christ. And we have little phrases that we like to use, right? We'll talk it during Christmas time. You, you see it everywhere. He is born, right? A babe is born in Bethlehem. All these things, they're very common phrases that we know. And you could say to one another, and we know what we're talking about. During, uh, on Easter Sunday, maybe, I don't know if you guys do this here, but um, you might say, he is risen. And the response would be, he is risen indeed. And we say that to one another to remember and acknowledge that Jesus has been raised from the dead. I think the opening of this psalm is the kind of thing that we should, the phrase we should say to one another during the rest of the year. The Lord reigns, and the answer is, let the earth rejoice. Let's practice. The Lord reigns. We'll try it again next week. But I think this is something that we need to remind ourselves of constantly. That's why the psalm opens this way. The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. The psalmist also references the multitude of isles, which is likely a reference to Gentile nations, right? So the psalmist is writing from Israel, and he's saying, let the multitude of islands, all the islands that are scattered through the Mediterranean Sea and and out into the rest of the world, those islands are filled with Gentiles. So this Jew, this Hebrew, this psalmist is calling even before Christ comes, for all the Gentiles to be glad because the Lord reigns. God promised that through Abraham's seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Jesus came to the world and was crucified for sin, and through him, all those who believe in him are raised to new life. Right? This is why, when we see Jesus in this psalm, we rejoice. Jesus came and he died for our sins. But also there is joy in the ascension of Jesus. It's not just, again, that Jesus is king in your hearts. Jesus is king over all the earth, and so all the earth rejoices. All the kingdoms of the earth are Christ's. And so we are working here on earth in his name to preach the gospel to all the nations so that they would acknowledge his lordship. And so we proclaim this with great rejoicing because he already is king. So again, this is, this is how the psalmist begins the psalm. This is the thesis. This is the main thrust of everything that's going to come after in this psalm. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the multitude of isles be glad. Verses 2 through 7 then, again, um, uh, describe God's power, his majesty, his holiness, and particularly how those things are terrifying to his enemies. Verse 2 describes the presence of God and sets the stage for how he interacts with his enemies. Verse 2 begins, clouds and darkness surround him, and then righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. This imagery of clouds and darkness is is striking if you think about it. Why is it that that we worship a God who's covered in clouds and darkness? Think about that for a moment. It's a little odd, right? 
We want to talk about a God who has revealed himself, a God who is full of light. John says that God is light and in him is no darkness. So what does the psalmist mean? Well, if you remember in, in, your Old, in the Old Testament uh, stories, clouds and darkness represent the glory and holiness of God. When Jesus, or when, when God the Father delivers Israel out of Egypt, how does he lead them? He leads them with a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. And then he fights for them from the cloud and fire against Pharaoh and his chariots. That's how God delivers his people, through the cloud. In Exodus 19, the people come before the Mount, uh, come before Mount Sinai in the wilderness to receive the law from God. They meet with God there and they are terrified. Because the mountain is burning. Exodus, or Moses describes the mountain as a furnace. The whole mountain. Right? You've seen pictures of the forest fires that we've had over the last few years in, in the Northwest and in California. And when you, when you see a picture of that where every single tree is on fire, the ground is glowing, the sky is glowing, it's, it's kind of terrifying. Now project that onto Mount Rainier. And it's surrounded by clouds and there's smoke going up. That's what the children of Israel were in front of when they met with God. And it was, it was representative of His holiness. God was coming to meet with His people to establish His law and His covenant with them. 1 Kings 8, when the temple is completed, it says that the glory of the Lord and the cloud of the Lord descended into the holy place and filled it so much that the priest had to leave. They couldn't stay there because there was so much of God's holiness in this cloud. They couldn't do the work in front of them, they had to leave. God's holiness is a cloud. It's, it's throughout Scripture, this, this is the image that we have. And this reminds us that God's ways are not our ways. God has revealed Himself to us in His Word and in His Son, but there is still much that is hidden from us. Now, for those who are in Christ, for those who know Christ, this, these clouds, this darkness, we know that this is His glory. And we rest in that. We trust in Him. But imagine for those who do not know Christ, the clouds and the darkness are merely storm clouds. Darkness that's going to envelop them because they are blind. They don't know Christ. And so you see how his, God's glory, His clouds, this, His darkness causes great fear among His enemies. And for His friends, it's not... It's not fearful in the same way. We still fear him. We're in awe of him, but we cling to Christ because he's the revelation of God. God made known. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Psalm 89 actually has this same phrase, but it follows it with this. Mercy and truth go before him. And in Hebrew poetry, a lot of times you'll have two lines that go together. And the second line is an explanation or a further um, uh, insight into the first line. And so I think we can see that righteousness and justice are uh, parallel with God's mercy and his truth. Those things actually go together. We see that fulfilled particularly in Jesus, right? God's righteousness in Jesus is shown because sin must be dealt with. Sin must be paid for. And his mercy is shown in that God so loved the world that he sent his only son to bear that sin. All of God's decrees come from this foundation of righteousness and justice. That's what it means when it says uh, these things are the foundation of his throne. God's throne is the place from which he sends his decrees, from which he rules, from which he reigns. So everything that he does 
is founded on righteousness and justice. Verses 3 through 5 describe what happens to God's enemies. A fire goes before him and burns up his enemies round about, like Sodom, like Egypt, like the Amalekites. God consumes the Levites, Nadab and Abihu, in the wilderness when they offer pagan worship before God. This is in Leviticus 10. Just after, when God is establishing what the, the roles for the Levites are, Nadab and Abihu are sons of Aaron. They're the Levitical, they're the, the high priests who are supposed to serve with Aaron in the temple. And they come before God with um, what the Bible calls strange fire. It was pagan worship. And what does God do? They offer him strange fire. So they have become God's enemies within the camp of Israel. And so God sends his own fire and devours them. They are completely consumed. We see this also in pictures in, in the sacrifices, the sacrificial system. When, we would, when the people of Israel would bring sacrifices before God, it was usually most often because of sin or some uh, impurity or unholiness in their lives. They would bring these sacrifices to, before the temple. They'd slaughter the animals, set them on the altar, and what would happen? They'd be burned up because God's holiness consumes sin. God's holiness is a fire and it consumes sin. His lightnings light the world, verse 4. Earth sees and trembles. Compare this with the beginning of the psalm. His lightnings light the world. There's these big flashes like we experienced on, on Wednesday night with the fireworks. You get some of those really, really bright ones where it lights everything up. You can't look at the firework anymore. So you look at the ground and all of a sudden you realize you can see it's as bright as day. That's what God's lightnings are like, are like when, he, when he acts. And the earth sees and trembles. Verse 1 says, let the earth rejoice. Verse 4 says, the earth sees and trembles. For those who dwell on earth, what is more solid than earth itself? Earth is the thing on which we build our foundations. Right? If you're a builder or you've ever built a house before, you know how important it is to have the foundation be sturdy. It must be right. It must be perfect so that the house is going to stand. But what do we put our foundations on? We put our foundations on the earth, right? On the ground. The ground, the earth, is the most solid, stable thing we can think of. And yet, in the presence of God, earth trembles. It's as though God's foundation of righteousness and judgment rocks the earth. Those who are founded on the rock and refuge of God will stand like the wise man who built his house on the rock, as Jesus tells us in the parable. But those who are not anchored to God will be shaken as the earth trembles. Verse 5, the mountains melt like wax at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the Lord of the whole earth. Look real quick with me at verse 5 here. And again, you'll notice that the first time it says LORD, the word is in all caps. The second time, it's not. This is an instance where in the first time, uh, the psalmist is using the name of God. So we could read this as, The mountains melt like wax at the presence of Jehovah, at the presence of the Lord of the whole earth. So the second time that it uses LORD, it's more of a title, describing God's power, describing his position over all of the earth. Mountains and hills throughout Scripture are metaphors for God's enemies. If you have your Bibles, flip over to Isaiah chapter 40. This is a prophecy about the coming of Jesus. Isaiah 
Isaiah 40, starting in verse 3. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill brought low. There's the key verse. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. How do we know that this is talking about Jesus? It's because Luke, in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3, quotes it in reference to John the Baptist. In the uh, work that John the Baptist was doing. Look over now at Luke chapter 3. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Eturia, and the, and the region of Traconitus, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. Pause. That's five Roman rulers. Okay, five Roman rulers. Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, Herod, Philip, and Lysanias. Then verse 2, while Annas and Caiaphas were high priests, two Jewish rulers. The word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias in the wilderness. That's John the Baptist. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, this is where he quotes from the passage we just read, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his paths, every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough ways smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Luke lists all these rulers that are directing all the goings-on in Israel when, when John is at work here. And he says that John has come to, as the voice crying in the wilderness, who's preparing the way of the Lord, saying that every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill brought low. What happened between these rulers and Jesus? They crucified him. They nailed him on a cross. And where are they now? They're only names in a book. Where is Jesus now? Jesus, the God-man, is at the right hand of the Father. And he's ruling the earth now, currently. He is your king. He is ruling right now. These kings are gone. These mountains, these hills, they've melted like wax before the glory of the Lord. Spurgeon said, States and kingdoms which stand out upon the world like mountains are utterly dissolved when he, when he decrees their end. Systems as ancient and firmly rooted as the hills pass away when he does but look upon them. So there is no government, there's no king, no tyrant, no republic, no one that can stand unless the Lord sustains it. And when they stand against him, we might not see their end currently, but we turn to this psalm and we trust this psalm that at the presence of the Lord, the mountains melt like wax at the presence of the Lord of the whole earth. Verse 6 says, The heavens declare His righteousness and all the peoples see His glory. God's righteousness is, as one commentator says, conspicuous and illustrious as the heavens themselves. You can't go outside. Well, you can, but that's only because you don't appreciate, you're not thankful for the work that God has done in the heavens. But it's hard to go outside and not notice the sky. It's hard to go outside on a dark night and see the stars and the planets 
and not glorify God for them. God's righteousness is as obvious as the heavens themselves. God's righteousness and glory is on display for the whole world. And again, this is particularly true through the death and resurrection of Jesus. God himself came and displayed his righteousness in the world for all to see. Verse 7 says, Let all be put to shame who serve carved images, who boast of idols. Idols here has the sense of worthless gods. So we have carved images in the first part. The second part says worthless gods. What what do we mean by worthless gods? There's another psalm, I think, that helps to illustrate this. Psalm 115, starting in verse 3, says, But our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk. Nor do they mutter through their throat. These are the idols that men have made with their hands. What can they do? Nothing. Remember the story of Elijah, when Elijah goes and faces off with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. There's 400 prophets, and there's Elijah. And Elijah taunts them and says, you go ahead and make your sacrifice, call down fire from Baal, just so we can see who is God. And the prophets are dancing around, they're cutting themselves, they're doing all their rituals, all their pagan Baal worship, crying out to Baal for hours and hours and hours. And Elijah taunts them. Is your God busy? Is he sleeping? Is he in the back using the restroom? He's not listening to you. And Elijah prays to God, and God's fire comes down, consumes the sacrifice. God shows that he is God. These other gods are worthless gods. The next verse in Psalm 115, after this description of these idols, is very important. Those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. Those are hard words. If you create worthless gods, you become like them. We'll come back to that later. Spurgeon again says, A man who worships an image is but the image of a man. His senses must have left him. He who boasts of an idol makes an idol boast. And so the psalmist then reminds us of the place of idols. The end of verse 7. Worship him. All you gods. God is supreme over all other gods and powers. All other beings ought to pay him homage. Remember, all authority has been given to Christ. This verse, verse 7, is key to understanding this psalm explicitly in the context of the reign of Christ. This is because this verse is quoted in Hebrews 1, verse 6. In Hebrews it says, But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all the angels of God worship him. Now if you're paying attention, you should think that doesn't sound much like a quote. The verse in the psalm says, Worship him, all you gods. And in Hebrews it says, 
saying that this is from the Old Testament, let all the angels of God worship him. Similar ideas, but not exactly a quote. What's going on there? Well, this quotation actually comes from a Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. Septuagint was a translation that was uh, put together in the 3rd, 2nd centuries B.C., before Christ, and was frequently quoted by the New Testament authors, by Paul, by uh, Peter, and others. The main point in Hebrews 1 is that God the Father has exalted the Son over the angels. So we know that this is an appropriate way to view this psalm. We know it comes from this psalm because of the Septuagint, and the way it was translated there. We know that it's okay to apply this this translation to this psalm because the author of Hebrews did it, right? We trust the New Testament authors and they say, this is what the psalm is talking about, that let all the angels of God worship him. So what does this mean? In the passage in Hebrews, if you're, if you're looking at it, it's Hebrews chapter 1, verse 6. It says, but when he again brings the firstborn into the world, who is the firstborn? We all know it's Jesus. We know that Hebrews is talking about Jesus. What does he mean by firstborn, though? In Psalm 89, 27, God, speaking of David, says that he will make David his firstborn, the highest king, the highest of the kings of the earth. There we are. God, speaking of David, says that he will make David his firstborn, that is, the highest of the kings of the earth. David, we know, was a picture of Christ. Who else are we told is king of kings? Who else are we told is Lord of lords? So you can understand Hebrews as saying, but when he again brings the firstborn, the first one, the king of kings into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. And if all the angels are supposed to worship him, all the God-fearing beings, how much more so all of those who hate God, all the uh, demonic powers. These all must bow before Christ. God has established Jesus as King of Kings, the firstborn, and all angels and authorities and powers, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to him. Okay, so let's practice. The Lord reigns. So how does this apply to us? Where do we, what do we learn from this? This is just the first part of the psalm, the first half of the psalm. And it's interesting, as you look at the second half, the psalmist actually gives some direct application to you. So as a, a, an aside, I want to charge you this week, as you're able, to read this psalm, meditate on this psalm, study this psalm, because you're hearing some about it this week, you're going to hear some about it next week. Spend some time in it and, and meditate on it. But for where we are right now in the psalm, what, what application do we have from this other than the call to rejoice? I think we need to spend a little bit of time talking about idols. What idols, what worthless gods do we see in our day or in our lives? Right? Idols are not limited to statues and images. That's why I think it's helpful that the psalmist says actually worthless gods. Our idols, as one theologian said, are idol, are, sorry, our hearts are idol factories. The human heart can make up an idol out of anything. We can set up anything as more important than God, as putting our trust in something other than God. 
whenever we let something other than God and His Word direct us, whenever we honor something more than God, we have bowed to an idol. This ultimately is what sin is, right? Sin at its root is idol worship. Because when you sin against God, you are saying that there is something other than God that is more important, more worth following, more glorious, whether that's your own selfish desires, whether it's something you're working for or toward. And this takes many, many forms. One thing I think that is important for us to think about in our day is we often tie our happiness to some current fad, right? Whether it's clothing, whether it's food, whether it's type of car you drive, type of house that you have, type of haircut that you can get, whatever these different fads are, we think if I just do these things, then I'll be happy. I'll fit in. I'll feel right. It'll be good. If I just eat the right foods, I'll be okay. I'll feel good. If I just wear the right clothes, if I just hang out with the right people, if I just have, if I just had this, the right house, when our happiness is dependent on these things, they are an idol. Paul says that in everything I've learned to be content. In everything I've learned to be content. Which he says from prison, by the way. In everything I've learned to be content, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Right? That verse is not talking about, you know, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, which means if I really pray hard, I can go and dunk. It's not what it's talking about. It's, it's talking about you can be content in everything because you find your your resting place on the rock and refuge on Christ. Other worthless gods that we set up. Worry and anxiety. If I just had control over this situation, if I just knew what was going to happen, then I'd be okay. Right? That's an idol. Pornography. If I just, if, if I could just have a few minutes with the computer by myself, I'll be all right for the rest of the day. It's an idol. Money. If I just work, I just need to get this amount so that I can have my cars, my vacation home, and, and my family will be settled. It can quickly become an idol. Your self-image, whether it's at the workplace or on social media, how you talk about yourself, how you want others to talk about you, quickly becomes an idol. But when we succumb to these idols, we are confused, confounded, and in the end, shamed. When we read this psalm, we should pray this about ourselves. Let all be put to shame who serve carved images. Probably not your temptation. Carved images. Who boast of idols. Who boast of worthless gods who put their trust in worthless things, things that are going to pass away. But then you preach to yourself, worship him, all you gods, all you other idols, worship him. Let all the angels of God worship him. These worthless gods profit nothing. And we are told that those who fashion idols for themselves are like those idols. You become like what you worship. Idols are worthless, and those who make them and worship them become like them.
Sin is often the result of setting up an idol, in some way serving yourself instead of serving God. When you set up an idol to reign in your life, you are a slave. What sin has its hold on you? What can you not shake? Is it an idol? Sin is a slave master. It binds you. It blinds you. So your life is a confused and tangled mess and you're ashamed. But this is because we forget that the idol does not actually reign. It may have a hold on you, but that idol doesn't reign. No, the Lord reigns. The Lord reigns. This is why you must learn to sing and pray this psalm. Do you hear that God reigns? And do you rejoice? Jesus is Lord. The Bible says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Do you confess that Jesus is Lord? Do you believe that? If you have not confessed this, if you do not believe this, I entreat you to confess that Jesus is Lord. For God's righteous and holy fire will one day consume all those who refuse to name Jesus as Lord. And if you do believe, if you do confess this, then the exhortation to you is to live like it. Live like it. Jesus is your Lord, not your sin, not your worry. You're not defined by your sin. You're defined by your identity in Christ. Jesus is your Lord, not the substance that you can't go without. Not your anger. Jesus is your Lord, not your lust for pornography. Not your laziness. Not your complaining attitude. Not your work. Not your family. Jesus is Lord. When you are tempted to give in to your sin, to follow your desires as opposed to God's, one of the greatest weapons that God has given us is this truth. The Lord reigns. Wield this truth with joy. Our Lord Jesus reigns, and if he through the Spirit reigns in you, sin cannot. Cling to this. Believe it. Rejoice in this. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, You, O Lord, are most high above all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. Thank You that You reign, that You govern all things, that You sent your son Jesus to die for us, that you raised him from the dead and set him up as King of kings and Lord of lords. But God, it is hard for us so often to see this, to understand this, to believe it, to see it in the world, to see it in our own lives. God, we need your help to believe it. Help us to pray, help us to rejoice in this, to pray for this, to see it in our own lives. So Father, it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.